Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Eleanor Spicer-Rice, Ph.D. Dr. Spicer-Rice is an entomologist by training and the author of multiple books. Those books have focused on ants and spiders. But her new book is Unseen Jungle, The Microbes That Secretly Control Our World. At first blush, this might seem like an unlikely book to discuss on Talking Animals, but as I learned, Technically, microbes are animals, and they affect numerous animals. So there. Remember the younger audience in mind targeting a 7 to 10-year-old, but like many of the smartest projects over the years ostensibly aimed at kids, Sesame Street and Looney Tunes come quickly to mind. Unseen Jungle will likely be found illuminating and entertaining among an adult audience, too. Bring with charming illustrations by award-winning illustrator and noted graphic designer Rob Wilson, Unseen Jungle features Spicer Rice's clear conversational explanations of the presence and the functioning of microbes across a fistful of categories, such as house, yard, food, you. She also lays in a few interviews with professors and researchers bringing other information and perspectives to the book. We'll hear more about Unseen Jungle and about an array of microbes when I speak with Dr. Eleanor Spicer-Rice in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Also coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Rick Shabity, the co-founder and executive director of Suncoast Animal League, which this Friday, May 5th, presents its Casino Night, a fundraising extravaganza being held at Ruth Eckerd Hall. Looks like a number of great activities, including casino mainstays like blackjack, roulette, poker, craps, slot machines, etc., with all proceeds benefiting Suncoast Animal League and all the great work they do for all kinds of animals. More on this with Rick Shabity later in the show. Right now, though, let's talk microbes with Dr. Spicer Rice. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Dr. Eleanor Spicer-Rice back on Talking Animals. Good morning, Dr. Spicer-Rice. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you back. Uh, thanks for joining us once again. Let's get right into this. So as we've established, you're an entomologist by training. And fittingly, your previous books have focused on ants and spiders, all of which I guess we've talked about and more on this show. So walk me through the process by which you decided to write a book about microbes. Well, it's kind of fun because I didn't know anything about microbes before I started writing this book. I knew basically what most people know about microbes, which is not a whole bunch. But this group of researchers, Molly Hunter at the University of Arizona and Stefan Schmitzetzer at Iowa State, and Manuel Kleiner at NC State were working on this behavioral altering microbe with an NSF grant, and they asked me if I would write about it for children. So I started looking at it, thinking it was going to be really boring, and I discovered that it was fascinating. And not only was their microbe, their one little type of microbe fascinating, but there are behavioral altering and mind-controlling microbes all around us. And so once I started learning about it, I started seeing evidence of it everywhere I looked. And it just has made the world so much more vibrant, knowing that this incredible stuff is going on where you can't actually see it, but you can see evidence of it. So yeah. That's what happened with the book. We turned it into a book. Well, no, that's great. So I, I want to back up a little bit because one of the things, of course, I was going to ask about, but you've already sort of addressed in passing, but I want to come back for a little bit more uh, elaboration, maybe, is... When they were working, those researchers, on this, why did they approach you about writing for a younger audience uh, in particular? Oh, yeah, this is something wonderful about our National Science Foundation. When, when people are doing this complicated research, the National Science Foundation, when they fund this research, a lot of times they want you to have something called broader impact, which means they want you to help your, connect your research with the broader public. And so their idea, this group, this wonderful research team's group for their stuff, was that they wanted to help young people understand what they were doing in the lab. So they called me because I apparently have the mentality of a, of a young person when I'm <laughs> explaining things. Well, all kidding aside, I mean, because you've written books. You know, they've, I think we've already quickly established a PhD, entomologist. Mm -hmm. So... I mean, I, I know you have young sons, but I mean, how did they actually say, hey, I, I know, let's call Dr. Uh, Spicer Rice about, about this element of it? Well, the, they said that, well, one of the parts of their research is um, watching a wasp, which is a bug. So um, they, um, the cardinium, which is the bacteria that goes into the wasp, uh, that those people who studied those things, I happen to know one of the researchers on the team who's a geneticist. Okay. And so... 
he I think he just is like, oh, Eleanor knows about bugs and Eleanor knows how to um, write stuff. Maybe we'll ask her if she'd be interested. And this actually started during the COVID lockdown when I wasn't seeing anybody but my family mm-hmm. outside of the house. Yeah. So it just didn't even cross my mind to say no to anything. I was so excited to talk to other people that I don't, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm on the Zoom all the time. So I was very eager to do anything. Yeah. You know, the research to me in the beginning, just the idea of microbes, because I didn't really have a good idea of what microbes were, it sounded pretty boring to me. Um, but then once I started learning about them, I mean, they're fascinating, Duncan. They're, they're everywhere. They're all over us and in us. Yeah, well, I definitely want to get into that because I didn't realize that either until I read the book. And one of the things I was going to say about the fact that the book is indeed kind of aimed for younger readers, as you've already noted, and sort of, I think, the 7- to 10-year-old uh, readers in particular, I guess. In some ways, I wanted to almost paraphrase Groucho Marx and say, a 7-year-old could understand this book, go out and get me a 7-year-old. I can't make heads or tails of it. But <laughs> but actually, the thing that's great about this book, among many things, and I kind of alluded to this in the in the opening, is that It's like a lot of great things, like I think I mentioned Sesame Street or Looney Tunes or whatever, that operates on at least two levels. And so I'm sure if you're a seven or eight or nine or ten year old kid or anybody on either side of that range, reading this is really cool and fun and fascinating. But if you're considerable decades older than that age range, like me, for example, it also was really, really illuminating. I mean, I learned a lot and it was fun reading and so I guess back to my original question, which I've now some, somehow answered more for you than you have. Um, I think whoever approached you about doing this, writing this part, knew that with your kind of writing skill and, and obviously demonstrated in those other books and your expertise, uh, like you were the person for the job. Well, I don't know, but I have to tell you, I really appreciate what you're saying about about people reading it. That really means a lot to me. Because well, one of the things, that, like when I was looking at the stuff, some of the stuff that we wrote about in the book, I, I wrote the book by going to peer-reviewed research and writing about it. Because so some of these stories have never been told for a popular audience before at all. And because I didn't know anything about it, I just got to pick stuff that I thought was super neat. Yeah. really fun. That's part of what comes across there is there is a sense of fun and uh, a sense of discovery which is always great to transmit in, in any kind of book, especially, again, if it's aimed ostensibly at a young audience, but also can and does reach and appeal to an older audience. Any of that sense of discovery and excitement and like, oh, my God, get, get a load of this. Let me tell you this thing next. I mean, that's super hard. That's irresistible. It's kind of contagious, right? You Then you just say, well, what's on the next page? What's in the next chapter? So oh, thanks. That means a lot because that's basically how it was written. It was just me being really excited about what I'm <laughs> What I'm finding and then telling people because it's it's really cool. Can we talk about what a microbe is real quick in case people? Yeah, well, no, I was de- I was actually going to get to that, but I'm just going to first tell oh, folks this right. is Talking Animals on WMF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Eleanor Spicer Rice, an entomologist and author. Most recently, of Unseen Jungle: The Microbes That Secretly Control Our World. If you have a question for Dr. Spicer Rice or would like to offer a comment, microbe focused. I guess primarily, but really any kind of question or comment, because as we've, I think, already noted, she's uh, got expertise in a lot of different realms. You can call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So, yeah, let's do a bit of Microbes 101, starting with, yeah, what indeed is a microbe? Yeah, because that's one of the things that I didn't know. So a microbe is just any living thing that's too small for us to see. That's it. So most of us can't see less than half of the width of a human hair. That's about a half of a millimeter. And that includes most bacteria, some fungi, protozoa, this weird stuff called archaea, algae, and then some really, really tiny animals like the forehead mites. There's mites that live on your foreheads and they crawl across your face at night to mate. They're microbes. So there's microbes covers so many different types of creatures. Some people don't say that viruses are microbes. I included them in the book because viruses are really weird. But viruses don't technically meet all of the requirements of being a living creature. Because to be alive, you have to move, breathe, or somehow respire, excrete, grow, and be sensitive to things and reproduce. But viruses basically just reproduce, and they don't move on their own. 
So viruses are kind of in their own special category, but but yes. kind of included. But it's up to, it's up for grabs. Yeah, grab it, it's it's in there with an asterisk, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the rest of it is all microbes, and they're all over. Well, that's the other thing too is that again, the, a lot of us that maybe are just coming to the microbe world uh, did not know or realize microbes are pretty ubiquitous. I mean. More oh, ubiquitous yeah, than I think better. some might imagine and more ubiquitous than some might like when they find out where all these things are and how they work and what kind of things take place. And uh, and again, you divide the book into sort of four broad sections about where, where they are, or just uh, noting in the house, in the yard, in food, and of course in you, which can get people probably a little nervous. So, but, turn- Duncan, as you know, like we, I write about ants and spiders, and as yeah. an entomologist, one of the things that I'm used to is this idea that some of the most important parts of life on Earth are often those that are either ignored, like ants or microbes, or reviled or feared. And microbes and and insects are kind of hand-in-hand on that kind of thing. They're all extremely important, but oftentimes we don't recognize them unless they're bothering us. So we think about diseases, and it bothers us, and then we're afraid of germs. But the truth is, one in three cells on our human bodies, by our most conservative estimates, is not a human cell. It's a microbial cell. And they're on there performing amazing tasks for us that we need to survive. We need them much more than they need us. I think that's really interesting just by itself. But also, it makes me go back to sort of your explanation of how you got launched on this thing. So, again, the researcher said, hey, Dr. Spicer Rice, can you write about this to appeal to our younger audience to fulfill that element, of, I guess, of the, of the grant? But then from that, having done that, then were you kind of just on your own to sort of say, well, let me let me round this out into a book? Yes. Yeah, so basically what happened was they gave me free reign. I've never worked with a group of researchers like the people from these three universities before. They were so creative and so um, open to any ideas. And so I said, this is great. Here's your research. Do you mind if we get an illustrator? So we got Rob Wilson, and you've seen his illustrations for the book. He's amazing. Yeah. He doesn't, he, he's an artist, and so he just reads about this weird stuff, and then he draws these hilarious pictures that I would have never come up with on my own, you know? And they said, sure, get yourself, get, get an artist, and we got the best artist. And then I said, well, can we tell other stories, too? And they were like, that's great. Tell whatever you want to. It was the most wow. thrilling process of, like, coming up with ideas and then having them supported all along the way by people who are at the top of their field in their own in their own right. Yeah. So it was wonderful. It was so exciting. And I feel really lucky that they let me do it. And then Candlewick and MIT Kids Press bought it, and now I've turned it into this book for everybody. That's great. And we should say that it's out as of now. And again, we're talking about a book called Unseen Jungle, The Microbes That Secretly Control Our World. So I think pretty much anywhere you get your books, you can get this one, correct? That's correct. Yeah. And if you don't see it, ask for it. Right. Demand it. And get it. Say, I'll, yeah, I'll, set, yeah. I'll set some evil microbes on you if you do not get me that That's book right. by this afternoon. Right. Yeah. Well, actually, let's take, we got somebody who's like to get in on the conversation. Let's uh, let's get them involved. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Dr. Uh, Spicer Rice. Yes. Uh, I just have a quick question for Dr. Rice about water hippos and what we can do with them and how they can affect our science. Did I believe that's water, what they're called. Water Did, hippos? Yeah. Microscopic. Are you thinking about water like bears? Little hippos. They look okay. like little hippos or little water. They're tiny, tiny little creatures. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We. Uh, I've never heard them called water hippos, but you know what? I feel like they should be called water hippos. They. They're called. And as of as of now, they are called water hippos. I think well, we. That's what they were referred to in the documentary I saw about it. Oh, that that's how they were referred that's to. Good. Okay. Yeah, or I the love water that. hippo. All right. The microscopic, teeny, so tiny little things that we can, in the documentary they were talking about, they can possibly be uh, connectors throughout the body that you can take these things and they will be your bees or the, they'll, they'll do the work for you if, if your body can't do it. Oh, I don't even know what this is unless we're talking. I don't think those are tardigrades then. Have you heard about this, Duncan? Uh, no, but I, I'm fascinated. And, and 
The fact that we're talking about something microscopic that has the name hippo in it just inherently intrigues me. So I, I, yes, I, I, I can swear that's what they refer to them as, is water hippos. Really and they, are, they are microscopic, and they're kind of, they look like hippos, kind of, but their head's a little bit cattywampus, or, you know, it's almost like a rhino horn or something on it, but... And I assume these are under the category of microbes, right? That's what prompted the call? Yes, absolutely. They yeah. are uh, tiny microscopic things that can be used in the... Well, they're researching and used in the human body for uh, work. I have never Medical heard of this, work. but this is thrilling. If it, if it is the same thing as a tardigrade, that would be amazing. Because tardigrades look like hippos, and they have these little horns on them, and I've heard them referred to as water bears, but I'm wondering if okay, there is something maybe, different. Maybe that's a water bear, but I... I but they, you know. they're incredible. They can freeze or dry out. They're basically indestructible creatures, and they have these cute... They've got eight legs, and they've got little claws and stuff, and we are, as, as humans, are completely baffled by all the things that water bears can do. They live on all of the extreme environments of the planet. And so they can dry out and not be not eat for millennia. And then you can rehydrate them, and they turn back into these little creatures that crawl around. They're amazing. So I, yeah. I think it makes and sense like that they would use them for uh, our earlier, this, it, When you dove into this, it becomes a whole new world that's amazing. Isn't it wonderful? You know, E.O. Wilson, who is an ant guy, he's a he, he was an ant guy. He recently passed. He said that if he had been born now in the 21st century, he would have been a microbial ecologist. Like he would have changed his whole life because this is the frontier uh, where research is. We're just now at the tip of the iceberg of how important and amazing microbes are. Wow. Well, this is. Doctor, this... Thank you very much for taking my call. And thank you for your call. I enjoy your show. Th thanks so much for your call. Very interesting question. And I think we've established, I believe at least, that water hippos may be the same, same if not uh, at least similar, if not identical to water bears. As water bears. Okay. I might Let's say the that they are. No, that's Wrong. great. That's good. We've cleared up an important mystery. All right. Thank you so okay, much for your call. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, Dr. Spicer Rice, so again, I think what I was starting to note there um, is that it turns out that humans are lousy with microbes. And um, so tell us a yeah. little bit about humans well, as, a re as a repository of microbes. A way of being lousy, as if we are covered in life, mean, not as if we feel lousy. Right. Right. Yes. We're, we're loaded. We're loaded with microbes. I know. Let's, put, let's put it that way. Microbes. Yes, and they're wonderful. So they found that there, and some people we have two hundred different species of microbes just living in our belly buttons, and we don't really know what they're doing there. They're just there, and they all over our bodies. They influence so many things about our lives that we don't even realize. They can influence what we're able to eat because they digest our foods. On our outsides, they're our first line of defense against diseases because they occupy almost every square centimeter of space on our bodies in all kinds of forms, and they're constantly fighting off microbes that need to get into our bodies, that want to get into our bodies to hurt us. They influence how attractive we are to others because they influence the way that we smell. That foot smell that you have, that comes from microbes, but so do the smells that make you attractive to other people. In our guts, groups of microbes can send messages to our brains to say, hey, can this person feel calm and relaxed? And we'll feel calm and relaxed. Or they can send messages to say, hey, can this person feel anxious or depressed? And we'll feel anxious or depressed. They control, they make vitamins for us that we have a hard time making, like uh, vitamin C or folate or B12. They help us to digest foods that we would not otherwise be able to digest. They're just extremely important. If we scrape all of the microbes, off of our body and out of our body. We wouldn't be able to do it because we would die without major medical help. But if we were able to and put them in a sack, it would weigh between one and six pounds. Wow. Isn't that cool? That is cool. Yeah, they're wonderful. I just, I just, I'm amazed by all the things that they, that they do for us. Yeah, you've gone microbe crazy, it sounds like. I have gone microbe crazy. Are you feeling the fever? The oh, yeah. Well, no, like I say, having read the book, uh, I might not be as microbe crazy as you are, but I certainly, you know, <laughs> feel like I've learned a lot and become much more enthusiastic about microbes. Although at some point we'll get into some stories about some, you know, especially in, in back to your uh, 
what, well, what I used to think of as your world of, of entomology and some of the insect stuff that goes on that uh, sounds like it's right out of a sci-fi or a horror flick or whatever. But anyways, we have, we have another listener, I think, who wants to get involved in the conversation, so let's see about them first. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Dr. Spicer Rice. Is that me? Am I on? Yeah, that's you. Thanks. Okay. Um, first of all, I want to say that um, through WMF, I respond to a book you mentioned, and the book was uh, Immense World, and I was wondering if you read that. Yeah, I, I, had, Ed, I had Ed on the uh, show, yes. You know what? I'm reading it. I like it so much, I'm reading it again. Wow. That's great. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a nice, thick book, but you know what? I'm so thrilled with it. It's called Immense World. There's been I written by Ed Young. Yeah. Y O N G. Yeah, I had a great conversation with Ed on, on the show about that very book, and uh, it is fascinating. So maybe when, once you've incredible writer, once you've uh, finished rereading that one, then maybe Unseen Jungle is next up on your uh, reading list. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Right. Okay. Did you have a question or comment for Doctor Spicer Rice, or we're gonna? No, after reading, I just want to know about that book. Okay? Uh, okay. Great. Well, thanks so much for your call. I appreciate it. Okay, bye. Bye-bye now. I'm glad you brought that up. That book is so wonderful. Oh, my goodness, yeah. Incredible communicator. For sure. So, um, all right, so so really from your point of view, microbes, at least on, on us, on the humans, are pretty much all positive forces for the most part. Well, no, I mean, you can get sick. Uh, right, I think you mentioned strep throat as an aside at one point as one example oh, yeah. of a microbe-related yeah, thing. All the germs that can make you sick are microbes, yeah. if, if we're counting viruses. And But the other thing is that when your microbes get thrown out of whack is when you are more susceptible to diseases. So a lot of times, have you noticed that when you take antibiotics, your body gets out of whack and you have a hard time digesting your food or sure. your bowel movements? Yes, because you're messing around with your... You're killing... If it kills microbes, right? That's what antibiotics do. And they're killing the microbes in your gut tract, and it's making it all out of whack. So you've got to get repopulated with your good microbes so that you can function properly. So mostly, they're great. But like anything in the world, there's some bad actors that can bother us. Yeah. Well, I guess since I just uh, mentioned, maybe we should go to, to the thing that, that I, I alluded to because... I mean, there were some th- hair-raising things, not not necessarily in the human uh, portion uh, so much, but um, but just some of the insects and stuff engaging in types of behavior uh, or, or practice or whatever that might remind readers, again, like I say, of a sci-fi scene or some kind of horror flick. Um, so, uh, again, as a card-carrying entomologist who may have become a, mi- a mi- microbiologist just since we started talking... Um, do you want to address some of those uh, things that insects uh, and microbes, you know, what happens in some of those things? Um, oh, yeah. What do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk well, about ladybugs? Do you want to talk about well, cicadas? Yeah, I was going to say either ladybugs or, or definitely the cicadas with the uh, massospora, I guess it is. Is that the oh, one that's... Oh, yeah. You want to talk about them? Let's, let's talk about them. Okay. Can All right. Well, you'll be, you'll be doing most of the talking. I'll do most of the listening if that's okay. Okay. You, okay. Here we go. Okay. Let's try this out then. All right. So, Massaspora, okay, cicadas. Everybody knows cicadas. Down in Florida, you have tons of species of cicadas, and they sound wonderful during the summer months. Massaspora is a type of fungus that infects male cicadas, okay? So, a little spore gets on the male cicada and drills into his body and then starts to reproduce in the cicada as the cicada is alive. And the first thing that it does is it eats off all of his reproductive organs. And it replaces them with a little fungal plug that looks like an eraser. Like a, it looks like his butt is an eraser, right? And then it starts to control his mind. And it goes to his brain and it says, hey, buddy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to rub your bottom on the ground while you're walking. So here comes this poor mind-controlled cicada and he starts wiping his butt on the ground as he walks. And as he's doing that, he's spreading the spores of the fungus around. And then before he dies, because it's eating him alive, right? It's going through all of his body. It's, he's not going to be able to survive much longer. And so it goes to his brain and it says, hey, hey, fella, now it's time to mate. 
but I don't want you to call the call of a female of a of a male cicada. I want you to switch your call so that you're making the sounds that a female cicada would make, which is incredible, right? He's able to totally change the call uh, that he's doing. So here he is, this dude sitting on a tree, calling out his heart out, but sounding like a female. So who does he attract, Duncan? When he makes his call of a female cicada, uh, another male. More males. Yeah. So all of these male cicadas come flying in, hoping that this is going to be the hottest date of their lives. And he jumps on them, and he wipes his spore-covered butt on them and infects them all with Mathispora. So this is happening in our trees. Like, while we're hanging out, listening to all these beautiful calls, some of those may be the calls of a male masquerading as a female infecting others with their massive fungus. And is, is it wonderful? Yeah, and is it luck of the draw, Dr. Spicer Rice, that like uh some don't have that experience and so the, the and some don't become victims in that way. That's correct. Yeah. But as with many things in life, yeah. It's just to how what what you happen to encounter along the way. Which cicada you happen to run into the other night? Yeah, yeah. who you happen to run into? Yeah, they need to keep their eyes peeled. They yeah. don't have eyelids, so they have to keep their eyes peeled anyway. But yes, it's just luck of the draw. All right, and you mentioned ladybugs, so let's let's maybe spend a moment or two on that, and then we have so many other things to talk about. And I just want to make sure we don't run out of time. Yeah, because we haven't even talked about pets. Right. Okay, I'll tell you about ladybugs. It, because you're a pet, because you're a talking animal. Right. Okay, so ladybugs are a type of beetle. They're they're beetles, and um, they are predators, which is great. They they then they taste really bad, so birds don't eat them. So they're a great bug in terms of not getting bothered when they're adults. That's why they're bright red. They don't care. Nobody wants to eat them. So there's this tiny orange and black wasp with green eyes that they call the green-eyed wasp. And what it does is it flies over to ladybugs and it stings them. And when it stings them, it puts one egg inside the ladybug's body. And that egg hatches inside the ladybug's body, and the ladybug has no idea that this is going on. A baby wasp kind of looks like a maggot. So here's this maggot living inside this ladybug, swimming around, eating it alive like the fungus is eating it alive. Well, a, ma- a maggot is not a microbe, right? That's so that I wouldn't fall into the book. But what happens is, what makes this a part of this unseen jungle is that while this baby wasp is swimming around, it's releasing a virus that it's infecting it with. It gets the virus from its mother. And this virus, when the maggot is ready to pupate and emerges an adult wasp, the virus goes to the ladybug's brain and starts just bursting brain cells in the ladybug's little brain. So here... This maggot bursts from the um, ladybug's body and it pupates. That's a very tender place to be as a wasp because anybody can just come and pick you up and eat you. But what happens is the virus controls the ladybug's mind by going to its brain and it tells the ladybug that it must hold on to that tightly to that pupa and guard it from anything that's coming to eat it. So this poor ladybug is now mind-controlled into guarding the very thing that was eating it alive. And the saddest thing about this one is that a quarter of ladybugs recover from the virus and they recover from being eaten alive by this um, wasp and then they're infected again. The rest of them die. It's kind of amazing. And also, we are starting to see a theme of mind control, by the way, that yeah. uh, that I guess harkens back to my sci-fi related uh, reference because it's like... The stories in this book involve some form of mind or behavior control by microbes because I thought that was super cool. Yeah. Well, again, this is (laughs) talking... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no. Go ahead. I was going to say, this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Dr. Eleanor Spicer-Rice. We're discussing her new book, Unseen Jungle, The Microbes That Secretly Control Our World. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663. Email DJ at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. So, yeah, so although we have made it clear, I think, hopefully by now, that the microbes themselves are animals, since this is an animal-oriented show, let's also t- bring another animal into the picture and get what I think is referred to as the diggity on dogs. Oh, yeah. Do you want to talk about dogs? Yeah. I love dogs. Well, I love dogs anyway, but I, I love the idea of 
our history with dogs because we've been keeping dogs as pets for at least 20,000 years, probably at least 10,000 years longer than that. And we started doing that by sharing our food and sleeping spots and stuff. And as we share these places, we've also shared microbes with dogs for all these millennia. And so when we live with dogs, we have more microbes in common with our own dogs than we do with other people's dogs. And couples who live with dogs share more microbes with each other than couples who don't have dogs. But something that I really loved that I learned, oh, oh, also this general, like for pet owners, dogs who grow up in the country have less lower rates of asthma and stuff than dogs who grow up in the city. And they think that's because dogs in the country have a healthier microbiome than city dogs do. Um, it's a matter, it's a matter of being what they're exposed to, you mean, early on? or Right. Yeah. yeah. So okay. we get our microbes from our parents, our first dose of microbes from our parents, from our mothers. And then the rest we pick up along the way from, from the things that we eat and the things that we touch and the people that we know. And so the dogs are the same way, and they run around in the country and run outside, and they pick up more microbes than dogs who uh, live primarily in large urban um, habitats. But something about dogs that just blew my mind when I was learning about this, I met a researcher named Heinemann Tun, and he studies pregnant mothers who have dogs. And he found that if the mother had a dog while she was gestating, when she gives birth, um, whether or not she keeps the dog after it, after the baby's born, she's giving microbes from that dog to babies. So babies who are born into homes where they had dogs while they were being gestated, um, some of those microbes are associated with lower risks of uh, lower levels of asthma and lower obesity throughout your life. So it's like a benefit from having dogs when you're gestating, which I, I didn't have any idea that microbes, um, we're connected with things like obesity and asthma, but they are. So that's a benefit from having dogs. Yeah. So it sounds like, um, and I think I remember reading at least part of this in the book, that just by virtue of living with a dog, uh, you're exchanging, uh, I mean, both sides of the equation are getting microbes that are different or more specific to just you and that dog than just that dog would otherwise have or just that you would otherwise have if you weren't living with that dog. That's correct. And um, these microbes um, give you benefits from having them, many of them, not all of them. We don't even have any idea how many microbes that we're getting from our dogs. We just know that some of them are associated with, with benefits. And something that I love, I recently lost my dog and she was, she was one of my very favorite things on the entire planet. Oh, I'm very sorry. And thank you. I, I'm really, I mean, it's horrible for me, but something that's pretty to me about it is that I still have her microbes. So yeah. She's gone, but part of her is literally still living on me, and part of her is living on my children, and it just is very comforting and, and wonderful to me. And the same thing is true for people who have partners and our parents that we've gotten microbes from. We have living parts of the things that we love living on us now. And I, I don't know if you think that's wonderful. I, I certainly do. That's yeah. very comforted and happy. Yeah, especially because it's, it's really specific to that dog and, and then you and your kids or your husband or, right. you know, me and, right. you know, whoever it might be. I mean, it's, it's, it's unique to that relationship because those microbes don't exist at least in that exact uh, way or combination right. anywhere else. We all have our own microbial fingerprint. Yeah. That's right. Our, our microbes are as unique as, as, as we are. Wow. That, that really is uh, fascinating. All right, well, let's move into a few other things just um, so we make sure we hit a couple of things. For example, uh, food. I'm sure the food category is probably of interest to a lot of folks listening who may already have, have been a little bit uh, taken aback with some of the things that we've already discussed and what they might have learned here. So can you talk a little bit about bees? Um, oh, sure. Just because I, I think... Honey bees are cool, right? Yeah. Because Honeybees, in general, honeybee hive is like a whole body, right, of, of one body. And the honeybee hive microbiome, just like I said, our own microbiomes are as unique as we are. Each honeybee hive microbiome is as unique as the bee. They have their own microbiome. And just like we get our microbes when we're born from our mothers, honeybees start, get their first dose of microbes when their sisters vomit into their mouths 
as soon as they hatch. So they get the micro- gut microbes from their sisters. And these microbes are really essential to helping the bees to break down toxins and to help them break down pollen, which is really hard to digest, and nectar, and turn it into proteins and sugars. So honeybees need their microbes to be successful and, and alive. So one of the ways, there are a lot of bacterial diseases that can affect bees, and beekeepers will often put antibiotics on the hives, and then they find that their hives get sick from other things and die. And one of the reasons for that is you're killing the, quote, good microbes that mm. are keeping the bees alive. If you wiped out a bee's microbiome, they would starve. They would they could eat and eat and eat and starve because they wouldn't be able to digest the foods that they eat. And also, some of them would be poisoned by the toxins. So there, there, a lot of plants have that is toxic um, to protect it from people like people eating them. You know, yeah. So like oh, you know, like rhododendrons. You remember like way back in the day when the Greeks and the Romans are fighting, the um, Greeks would take rhododendron honey from the Black Sea and lay it out on the side of the road, and the Ro- Roman soldiers would um, harvest it, and it makes them, it's toxic. So they would have hallucinations, and they'd be out of their trees, and then the Greeks would come in and kill them all. Wow. Like, because, but the bees didn't die when they were eating it because the bees were able to detoxify it when they were using it as a food source. So anyway, microbes are, we didn't put up that about the Greeks and the Romans in the book. So... No, but we're getting a bonus, uh, some bonus material now. Well, bonus material, well, history lesson, yes. Yeah. So anyway, so it's really wonderful. So that, like us, bees have their own microbiome, and they need them to survive. And uh, while we're kind of uh, loosely, at least, on the topic of critters, uh, if you consider it be a critter, but certainly when we're talking about dogs. They're definitely but, critters. Right. So birds, maybe we should just touch on at least a little bit about the preening and the, the role microbes play there for birds. Oh, yeah. So they, so birds have this gland called uh, uropygial gland, and that is where they get the oils for helping them to their little feathers to be like rain slippers and, you know, to be waterproof. And, and also it um, helps them to smell attractive to their mate. And they found that the oils that are uh, in, in the uropygial gland, it's just packed with microbes. And these microbes are influencing the way that birds smell, just like they influence the way that we smell, and to make them more attractive. So healthier birds with more oils and stuff smell better with their microbes from this gland. So, yes. That's quite a, that's yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah, no, for sure. They're like, it's like their perfume. Is their signature? Yeah, or a cologne, depending on the uh, bird in question. Oh, yeah. But, well, uh, it's yeah. more like their cologne. Yeah, yeah. could be. So uh, we just uh, probably have maybe a minute or so left, Dr. Spicer-Rice, but um, since I am speaking to you from Florida, I think I'm constitutionally obligated to address uh, anything I can that's mosquito-related. So I think <laughs> I think that's maybe uh, if there's anything you want to say about that as it pertains to uh, microbes, maybe that'll be our final topic for today. Okay. Yes, I would love to talk about mosquitoes. First, my pitch for mosquitoes is most of the 3,000 species on the mosquitoes on the planet do not bother us at all. It's just the ones that we are like that have evolved to live with humans. But some mosquitoes transmit malaria, as you know, and malaria is a plasmodium that mind controls mosquitoes into like making people smell better than any other animals on the planet because the malaria needs the people and the mosquitoes to um, reproduce. Malaria kills 500,000 people people a year, by the way. Mm. And so in addition to messing with the mosquitoes' sense of smell to make mosquitoes who are infected with malaria more attracted to humans, once humans are infected with malaria, it messes with the way that humans smell to make them more attractive to all mosquitoes than to anybody, than to anybody else, than regular people, uninfected people are. So, you know, malaria is a bad actor in terms of microbes and mosquitoes. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, I think we've covered uh, what we can, at least in our allotted time today, about microbes. And I think hopefully people feel like there's been quite a few microbe revelations along the way. I, I certainly feel like I've gotten even more than I got in the book. But the book in question is Unseen Jungle, The Microbes That Secretly Control Our World. The author is who our guest is now, Dr. Eleanor Spicer-Rice. And um, the book is out now and available wherever you get your books. And uh, 
hopefully, needless to say, at this point, it's uh, it's fun and fascinating in all kinds of ways, and uh, might might make you kind of a micro microbe uh, fanatic yourself if you're if you're not careful. So. <laughs> Watch out. That's right. All right, so Dr. Spice Race, thank you so much for joining us again on Talking Animals. Good luck with the book. Thank you. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. All right, bye. bye. And I'm going to speak with Rick Shabaty, Executive Director of Suncoast Animal League, about their uh, big fundraising extravaganza casino night happening this Friday, May 5th at Ruth Eckerd Hall. If you like casino games from blackjack to craps, poker, and slot machines, you can enjoy them and more while helping support Suncoast Animal League's efforts. And also, speaking of things happening this weekend, you know, this Saturday, uh, May 6th, is our WNF's Tropical Heat Wave. It's back, baby. And uh, we are in our final push to get people to make sure they do not miss it and say, oh, I should have got tickets. So even today, we have volunteers here at the station to take phone ticket orders. If you want to go to Tropical Heat Wave, go to WNF.org. It's an incredible lineup, 15 bands or so, all at Ybor City and uh, the Cuban Club. So check that out. And if you want to get your tickets, we have people to take your order right now here at the station, 813-238-8001. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a piece by Nate Fridson as an acknowledgement that this Saturday brings us also to the Kentucky Derby. So amidst the mint juleps and fanciful hats, we should keep in mind that horse racing places those animals in serious jeopardy. It's not uncommon for horses to be injured or worse in those races. So with that in mind, here's Nate Fridson with a piece called Horse Racing. Today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. So like I worry about some of our older sports. Like how are they going to stay relevant in the next century? You know, like... Like horse racing. How is horse racing going to stay relevant? I think the only way is if technology gets so good that eventually we can talk to the horses after the race and do a post-game interview. Because I would watch horse racing if that was part of it. Just after the race, some sideline reporter just like, we're standing here with Haley's Comet. HCOM, great race. Talk to us about your preparation. And the horse is just like... <sighs> First, I just want to give the glory to God. <laughs> Through him, all things are possible, except having thumbs and driving a car. <laughs> you know, it's all about preparation. I, uh, I slept standing up last night. <laughs> ate a bag of oats, just, you know. It put me in a position to be successful. That's what Haley's Comet does. Haley's Comet comes to race. Haley's Comet comes to execute. Haley's Comet comes to refer to himself the third person. That's just, that's just Haley's Comet being Haley's Comet. You can't stop... Haley's Comet from doing Haley's Comet things. The reporter's like, uh, fascinating. Talk to us about turn three. That's where you really took control of the race. Yeah, well, there was like a small man on my back just, uh, just hitting me with, with like a rod or a whip. Do you know the thing I'm talking about? It's like a stick and then like a little leather flap. Like, I don't know what the word is for it because I'm a horse. I don't really have a big vocabulary. It's pretty much carrot and all those words I just said, but... I gotta be honest, I just want to be away from that guy. Like, that guy hit me a lot. Did you see that? Is there a ref? Is he gonna call anything out there? That dude was all over me. And yet, as fast as I ran, there he was in my back. I don't really get how that works. Again, I'm a horse. I don't have the capacity for reason. Was that a wizard? What was that? I'm, I'm glad it's over. That was Nate Fridson in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Horse Racing, taken from his album, Best Guy So Far. Now it's time to speak with Rick Shabity of Suncoast Animal League about their casino night taking place this Friday, May 5th at Rick Ruth Eckerd Hall. Sounds like an event you can bet on. This is Rick Shabity back on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Rick. Hey, Duncan. How are you doing? Great. How about you? Uh, doing real good and uh Thank you for having me on, and uh, very excited about the casino night on Friday night. Yeah, well, just just for you know, everyone listening that might be familiar with Suncoast Animal League, let's just take a quick sec, if you wouldn't mind, and just provide a brief overview of Suncoast and its mission. Well, basically, um, we started in 2006. We opened our doors in December of 2006, so we're going on 17 years now, and um, I ran uh, the Humane Society in, in Pinellas County for for 20-some years and uh, left there. We opened up Suncoast, and um, our goal was to do a little bit more than just, you know, taking cats and dogs and wildlife and 
and you know find them homes and and release the wildlife back into the wild. Um, we we wanted to do whatever animals came in, whatever they needed. We wanted to provide them with everything they needed to be the best that they possibly can be, and that's what we've been doing for the last uh, seventeen years. And um, you know, it, it's we've we've grown immensely, probably more than we expected, and we're very happy about that. And we are, you know, this is a this is one of the worst times that I can recall in my thirty some years of of working with animals. And um, we're just being pulled in in many 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 different directions from you know from uh, the public. Uh, in Tampa Bay area, shelters around the Tampa Bay area, and uh, shelters throughout Florida and around the country, the Bahamas, uh, Puerto Rico, Turks and Caicos. I mean, I mean it's just, it, it's really a bad time for everybody out there. It, it's just, all the shelters are crowded. Uh, people are having a little trouble with the economics and, and caring for the pets. Yeah. You know, and it's just, uh, it, it's it's been a really, really uh difficult time. I mean, uh, we're, uh, it's, it's hard to keep up with everything. Uh, right. Well, speaking of the economic difficulties, I guess that's part of the reason that major fundraisers like uh, the Casino Night are critical to uh, being able to keep uh, funding all the, the programs and resources that Suncoast yeah, offers. I mean, you're, you're exactly right, Duncan, and that's, that's why we're looking for this to be possibly the, the largest, most successful fundraising event that we've done in our 17 years. So we were actually, um, we have sold out or and since it's casino night, we like to say we have a full house. Okay, good. Uh, and, uh, um, so we're very excited about that. And, uh, of course it's going to be at Ruth Eckerd hall, which, you know, again, um, it's amazing. We had somebody come forward and, 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 uh, take care of the, the cost of the hall. Wow, that's great because that's a that's a much bigger venue than typically these kinds of events seem to take place in. So that's notable just on that level alone. And, and that's that's very true, and that's why it, it's just uh, um, like I said, uh, we started putting it together about two months ago, and, and it just you know, all the pieces have fallen in place. So uh, uh, again, we're really super excited about it, and we hope this will be our our biggest fundraiser um, ever. Well, if it's if it's already sold out, it sounds like it's uh, almost guaranteed success, right? Oh yeah, that it, yeah, that's uh, that's a very true statement, and uh, um, and then it's just uh, uh, see what happens on on Friday night, and then yeah, uh, you know, so uh, yeah, we're we're just uh, over the top excited about it, and uh, um, it's just one of the many things that we're doing right now. Um, I mean, uh, in the next few minutes, there'll be we're doing a distress day at West Wesley Chapel High School for the school teachers, and uh, so we're just all over the place. Right That's now. great. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's all going well, and uh, it sounds like no need to say you know good luck on Friday because it sounds like you already had uh, great luck and great success. So let's just hope it generates uh, at least as much as you're anticipating, and uh, to keep funding all the great work you guys do at Suncoast Animal League. So thanks, Rick, so much for joining us again on Talking Animals. And thank you, Duncan. Anytime, buddy. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Coming up on WNF Music Kicks Back In with Scott Elliott. He's back, baby. He's back from noon to 3 p.m. And a glorious three hours of music followed by Robin Hooper with another three hours of music. And we'll just keep the music coming as we roll into our block of Latin programming. Meanwhile, on this show, at the moment, it's, uh, as the prize for Name That Animal Tune, I'll be offering something fabulous from the Talking Animals Vault to the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song, which I'll give you a hint, features Magadog, one of the bands playing WNF's Tropical Heat Wave this Saturday, May 6th, at the Cuban Club in Ybor City. Visit WNF.org for more information and get your tickets. Don't miss out. Don't be the guy. The person says, oh, I didn't move quickly enough to get tickets. I meant to, but I didn't do it. So, anyways, this is Name That Animal Tune on Talking Animals on WNF.
If you can name that animal tune, we'll take your guess as soon as we finish up today's show, which we're rapidly reaching the end of. So this is uh, Towards the End of Talking Animals on WNF Tampa. I invite you to join me next Wednesday when my guest will be Diana Goodrich, co-director of the Chimpanzee Sanctuary Northwest, located in the state of Washington. She also serves as Public Affairs Committee Chairperson for the North American Primate Sanctuary Alliance, or NAPSA. So again, important information about chimps, many of which have come from medical research or other dire uh, circumstances into uh, a living a glorious sanctuary life. So I invite you to join us then. I also invite you to visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast. Apple Podcasts are available there too, as well as on other podcast platforms. Also links to our Facebook page, our Instagram page, Twitter feed, and more. Please like us, follow us, do all the right things on social media. And you can also subscribe to our newsletter to find out more about our guests a couple of days beforehand and other news from the talking animals world. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. This is Talking Animals on WNF Tampa, Brandon Clearwater Largo, Wikiwachi, and beyond. See you Saturday at Tropical Heat Wave. Meanwhile, coming up after NPR News Headlines, it's the fabulous Scott Elliott with all kinds of great music for you, as always. And, um... And also, he's in a band that's playing Tropical Heat Wave Saturday, so yet another reason to go. Anyways, it's WNF Tampa. We'll see you Saturday. We'll see you back here next Wednesday on Talking Animals on WNF. Thanks.